All right, Zechariah chapter 1 tonight, we'll look at verses 2 through 6, and first of all, we're going to review our introduction from last week, letter A on your outline, reviewing the introduction. We did the introduction of the book last night, which is vital, and so I got to start by giving you a pop quiz. I hope you're ready. We'll see how well you listened last week in the introduction. You didn't think you're just going to have to come and sit. You got to, you got to, we're going to take tests along the way. So seven questions for you. Let's see if you get them. And we have one bonus question to see who was really listening last week as well. So was the prophecy of Zechariah before or after the exile? Oh boy, we're going to have to start it. After, you're right, after the exile. Exactly. That was a layup. I was, they get harder from there. I was giving you an easy one to begin with. Second question, what does the name Zechariah mean? Anybody remember? Oh, Yahweh remembers. I was giving you a cue. A cue. Does anybody remember? Yahweh remembers. Why would that be important? Because they had thought God had forgotten them. They're in, uh, in exile, and so, so that's why after the exile, they, God sent a prophet by the name of Yahweh remembers. He does not forget. Question number three, what other prophet is closely associated with Zechariah? Haggai. All right, you got that one. That's good. Very good. Haggai and Zechariah right there together ministered and prophesied at the same time. Question number four, how many visions from God did Zechariah receive that are recorded in the first six chapters. Eight. Man, you're getting better. Wow, that's great. You're, you're, you're picking up now. That's good. That's good. Eight visions. We'll start looking at those visions next Wednesday night. Recorded in the first six chapters. True or false? You got a 50-50 shot here. <laughs> Zechariah's prophecy has always been fairly easy to interpret. No, that, that's false. That's exactly right. In fact, during the Middle Ages... Scholars said it was uninterpretable, that we'll never know until Jesus comes what it means. Well, scholars don't really believe that today. They believe that it can be interpreted, can be understood. But for, for many, many uh, hundreds of years, they did not think that his prophecy could be understood. Question number six, who was most famous, Zechariah's father, Berechiah, or his grandfather, Ido? Exactly right. Grandfather Ido, he was the well-known. In fact, it, it, it makes scholars believe that maybe Berechiah, Zechariah's dad, died at a young age because his grandfather was pretty well the one who was famous, popular, and, and everybody knew Grandfather Ido, who was a priest uh, in Israel. And then the last question before the bonus, what are the two primary themes of the book? Rebuild the temple. You, we worked for 18 years and you stopped. Get back after it. Stop with excuses. Stop with the defeatist attitude. Start building God's temple backs, number one. Secondly, the, 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 the second theme of the book is God's glory for Israel. The best days are ahead, not behind you. Remember, they thought with the exile, their glory years were gone. And, and Zechariah came in and said, nope, your best years are ahead of you, not behind you. Because the Messiah's coming not once but twice. And so he talks about the first and the second advent of the Messiah. So those are the two primary themes of the book. Keep building the temple and your best days are ahead of you, not behind you. Okay, now the bonus question. This one's a little harder. If you remember, 
Zechariah received all eight visions in the same night. What was the day of the month and the year, or the, or the, or the day of the month and the day of the month that he received the visions? Hey, you got that one pretty good. The 24th of Shabbat in the Hebrew calendar, and then it corresponds to our February 15th of the year 519 BC. So all eight visions given to him in only one night. And so that's February 19th of 519 BC. That would correspond. I think you did pretty well. Okay, I'll give you an A. It's the first night. Okay, so everybody gets an A tonight. Well, let's keep going and looking, first of all, at reviewing the introduction to Zechariah. This is a book that is designed to challenge and encourage the Israelites. Challenge them, but encourage them. It's the longest minor prophet. Remember, minor is the small books, major is the large books in the Old Testament. Largest minor prophet of all the 11 or 12 prophets. It's the largest, it's the most obscure, 211 verses. Uh, Zechariah spoke his, his uh, prophecy through visions, through exhortations, through uh, sermons, through symbols, through oracles, through apocalyptic literature. Many different ways he communicated the vision to God's people. And if you remember how the book breaks down, first eight chapters written during one time frame and chapters 9 through 14 in another time frame. So not during the same time, mostly written probably because it's two totally different kinds of material, literature. We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 9. Now, remember the background. This is vital in order to understand the book. Here's the background of what was happening. If you remember, 8th century, God's people, the Israelites, sinned. They turned against the Lord. They, they, they wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted a king. They wanted more than one God. They wanted to be just like the other nations. And they sinned against the Lord to become like the other nations. And God sent prophets to them, spokespersons to them, to say you need to repent or turn from your ways. If you don't, God's going to bring judgment in the form of another nation to capture your nation, capture your country. You're going to lose your land. Well, they didn't believe the prophets. They ignored them and didn't believe them because God gave them that land. He would not take it back. He's with them forever. They just didn't, they just didn't believe. They ignored the words of the prophets. And the prophets being Jeremiah and Isaiah and, and Amos and Micah and Hosea and, and those prophets of the 8th century, they ignored them all. Well, you know what happened, just as the prophet said, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon came in 587 B.C., captured Israel, and then continued the next year, 586 B.C., because Nebuchadnezzar, most likely his dad died, he went back to the homeland, came back to Israel to finish the job, conquered the land, killed some of the Israelites, carried the rest of them 1,200 miles back to Babylon to live as slaves. That's known in Israeli history as the Babylonian captivity, where they were enslaved in Babylon for 70 years. So there they are, generation, almost two generations, perish there in Babylon. They're raising their kids there. But God had promised them, you're going to get to go back to your homeland one day. And Jeremiah was the one that primarily told them that. They were going to get to go back to their homeland. And God, after 70 years, Persia captured Babylon. So now Israel's the property of Persia. Persia's policy of, of uh, 
maintaining slaves a little different. They let, they, they let them go back. And so Israelites, some of them got to go back. It was their choice. This is important for tonight. Whenever they were allowed to go back to their homeland from Babylon, they had a choice. You can stay in Babylon or you can go back. Well, most of them stayed. Why would you stay in Babylon? A lot of reasons. You've been there 70 years. You put down roots, raised your kids there. Your kids are there. That's all the kids have ever known. You've got jobs. They let them have jobs. You got a job. You got food. If you go back to Israel, there's nothing. Charred, rubble, bricks, stones, no crops, no way to make a living. So most of them chose to stay. 50,000, a remnant, came back. Hundreds of thousands stayed in Babylon. So those that returned, only 50,000. So those that returned were those that were considered to be committed, faithful. They kind of got to where we love God more than you do because we came back to the homeland to try to get the temple rebuilt. We want to build the altar again so our sins can be forgiven. And so 50,000 of the most committed came back. So if you think about why they would not want to return, land had been desolate for 70 years. If you rebuild it, it's going to be hard work. You hadn't got much money there because how do you make a living? There's not much manpower. Only 50,000 came back. You have crop failures. You have drought. You have hostile enemies that don't want you to rebuild. And times were simply easier in Babylon. So, only a remnant returned. Now, it's going to be important tonight. Once those 50,000 got back, they, first order of business, they laid the foundations of the temple. Laid the foundations of the temple, and they rebuilt the altar so their sins could be forgiven, and they got discouraged and stopped. So they didn't rebuild very much. They started growing crops and building their houses and things like that. And so they didn't get very far. So for 18 years, they stopped building. So the foundation's laid, and the altar has been rebuilt back up again so they can sacrifice and their sins can be forgiven. But then they stopped. 18 years later, after they'd stopped, Zechariah comes along and tells them you need to get back started rebuilding the temple again. So that's the background as to what he says in his prophecy. Now, with that in mind, let's go now to letter B on your outline, a call to repentance, chapter 1, verses 2 through 6. Zechariah, of course, verse 1 says, The eighth month, second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Ido, saying, verse 2, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. So the way he begins his prophecy is, repent and come back to the Lord. That's kind of an odd way to start, don't you think? I mean, can, can you imagine me coming to First Baptist Church of Garland 18 years ago, and it's my first Sunday, and everybody's here, they, they want to hear the new pastor, and everybody's here, and I get up, and my first words out of my mouth are, you, repent, you bunch of sinners. 
That's what he said. Not greetings, how are you doing? Uh, hello, everybody, I'm glad to be here with you. Nothing. Repent and come back to the Lord. Bunch of sinners. Now, wasn't this an odd group to call to repentance? They're the 50,000 that came back. Doesn't he need to be preaching to those in Babylon who chose the easy way rather than the hard way? Chose the devil's crowd rather than coming back to God's land? Shouldn't he be telling them to repent? Isn't it an odd group, those 50,000 who loved God and loved Israel and loved enough to travel 1,200 miles back home despite how hard it would be? They were the ones who loved the temple enough to come back and repair it. They are the ones that traveled 1,200 miles to repair that altar so their sins could be forgiven. But it's that group, he says, repent. Did they need that? They were faithful. They were the worshipers. They were the ones who loved God more. They were the remnant. They were the committed why tell them to repent? They probably went, repent us? Zechariah, you're telling us to repent? Tell those other yahoos to repent. We came back. We're the, we're, we're the faithful. But there's a fundamental principle here I hope you don't miss. Just because you're the ones faithful doesn't mean you need no repentance. I know tonight I'm speaking to those who are here on Wednesday night. You're the faithful. You're the committed. You're the 50,000 that came back. You're more committed maybe than a lot of other people out there. Maybe. But just because you're faithful to be here doesn't mean there does not need to be repentance in your life. Because, let's face it, most of us here are probably saved. Most of us here have probably been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. But we need to confess our sins as much as anybody else on a regular basis. Because we sin too. We develop attitudes that aren't right. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we can feel good about ourselves because we're the faithful. We're the committed. We don't need repentance as much as a lot of other people. And that attitude's easy to develop. Whereas 1 John 1, 7 through 10 talks about the believer's need to always repent and always confess sins to God. Those Jews, they weren't bad people. You're not bad people. But whenever we have sin in our life that's unconfessed, we no longer have fellowship with God. So tonight, don't just skip over the fact that he began by calling the most faithful, committed people in the church to repent. So that's where he starts. He says in verse 2, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Now, as he says this, you'll see uh, number one on there, do not neglect the past. You'll see on your outline, 
do not neglect the past, and that should be verse 2 on there instead of verse 1, as you see it on your screen there. I believe that's on our screen. Yeah, there we go. So um, the first words out of Zechariah's mouth, the Lord is very angry with your fathers. The very first thing he did is he reminded them, you have a pretty poor spiritual heritage. Your dads and your granddads and your great-granddads, they were the ones that heard the prophets preaching, and they ignored them. They are the ones that caused you to go into exile. It's their fault. The Lord is very angry with them because they, they ignored the pro- preaching of the prophets and doomed them to exile. And what he says is this, since God had been angry with your forefathers, Zechariah saw himself as the authoritative and faithful mouthpiece to the new generation. The other generations that had their mouthpiece, Jeremiah and Hosea and Micah and Isaiah, Amos, had those. Now Zechariah is saying, I'm your mouthpiece. Listen to what I say. And my first word is repent. Just as they were told to repent, they didn't. It could happen again, folks. You got to come back. God could send you back again, and it'd be harder. So listen when I preach to you God's words. Now, he says, it's kind of interesting in verse 2, the Lord is very angry with you. He uses the word Yahweh or Jehovah which meant covenant relationship with God and so he's talking to those who are believers in a covenant relationship with him but notice he says very angry now that in the as you read that in English you go okay he's very angry but they do it a little different in Hebrew Old Testament of course written in Hebrew today in English if you want to emphasize a word we do it with voice inflection like if I'm or to say I'm very hungry we could say, I'm very, 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 very hungry. Or most we say, I'm very hungry. And we do it with voice inflection. In Hebrew, they did it with words. They didn't do it with voice. So if they added a word, it was for emphasis. So in Hebrew, when he says the Lord was very angry with your fathers, he uses two words for anger or wrath or displeasure. And he combines them together. So his very first message to the people was reminding them, God was really upset with your forefathers. And that's your heritage. So be careful. Now, look at verse 3. Therefore, say to them, this is God speaking to Zechariah to tell him what to tell him for him. Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Let's stop there for a moment talk about that verse. Do you notice something different there? He says the Lord of hosts three times. Now, he doesn't say Lord of hosts earlier. He says the Lord. Why does he say Lord of hosts? Sometimes God will identify himself like that, the Lord of, Lord of, the, of your people or the Lord of the, of the banner of the uh, of the Lord or the Lord of hosts or the Lord of, of other things. He identifies himself. Here he calls himself the Lord of hosts. Why? The word host there literally means armies or army. The Lord of the 
army is telling you, return to me, says the Lord of the army, and I will return to you, says the Lord of the army. Whose army? Israel doesn't have an army. They just got back. They're not organized. They, they have 50,000 of them. They don't have a central government. They don't have a leader. They don't have an army. Who's the Lord of the army? We don't have an army. So, he might have meant one of two things. Number one, since you don't have an army, I'll be your army. Could have meant that, but that's not the context. Or here's the second thing it could have meant, which is the context. The last time you saw an army, they were, they were destroying your land, the Babylonians. They were destroying everything you knew. They were, they were knocking down your temple. They were destroying Jerusalem. They were killing your, your, your ancestors. The last time you knew of an army in this land, they were invading. It's a reminder. It could happen again. The Lord of the armies speaking to you. Return to me, says the Lord of the armies, and I'll return to you. So they needed to repent, return, as soon as they got back. Now, the word return, let's talk about that for a moment. It's the word in Hebrew, shuv. If you'll see it on your screen there, S-H-U-B. In Arabic today, the Arabs have no Bs. They pronounce them as Vs. In fact, uh, Jews kind of, kind of uh, laugh at them today for that because they don't say they're Bs. It was that way in Old Testament Hebrew as well, but today Arabic is still that way. And so, in fact, one of the jokes our tour guide told us on our last trip to Israel was about the Arabs not being able to say their bees. So it's the word shuv, S-H-U, pronounced like V. Let me talk about that word for a moment. It's the word for return. Verse 3, return. Shuv, says the Lord, and I will shuv you. Now, that word is vital, so I want to talk about it for a moment. 1,050 times in the Old Testament, the word shuv appears. It's the 12th most common word in the Bible, shuv. Jeremiah used it 111 times. Ezekiel, 62 times. It's the key word of all the prophets. If you can summarize all the prophets of the Old Testament into one word, it's shuv, because they all say it repeatedly. And it means repent, return, come back. Now, the word repent means to turn around. Even in the Greek New Testament, means metanoia means to turn around, do a 180. You're going one way, turn around, go the, go the other way. It means to repent, turn around. Shuv is a multifaceted word. I remember whenever I, I took a class in college at Oklahoma Baptist and, and getting my religion degrees, they call it then, it's Christian ministry today. I took a class called uh, Amos and Hosea, or, or the 8th century prophets. And I remember the professor talking about the key word is shuv. And we had to know shuv all the way through. We got to seminary at Southwestern. I took an, another class on 8th century prophets. Professor, again, you need to know the word shuv. Because it's the key word of all the prophets. It's a vital word. It's an important word. Let me go through some of why it's important. 
Shuv is a multifaceted word. In the most basic meaning, it means to turn around. It can denote what's called causative action, which implies motives. Why are you turning around? Well, sometimes they turn around because they were afraid, sometimes because of shame, uh, sometimes because they made a promise. Um, but it, it is a word that can also mean receiving back your life from the dead. It's resurrection is what it can mean. Um, or come back from a sickness. It's a renewal of life. Shuv is a renewal of life. So over and over and over, God told his people, many of them the faithful, you need to return to life. You're going through the motions. But you need to come back to a spiritual vitality. And that word was common in the Old Testament. Hebrew words, just to go a little bit further, Hebrew words, and I won't go into detail, but if you, if you parse them through the verb stem, they can change meanings. Shuv never does. Shuv never changes meanings. It always means turn around, come back. Sometimes when it's used in the Old Testament, it's, just simp- it's simply in the narrative. For example, you remember A- Abraham and Isaac went up to the mountain and and he was going to sacrifice Isaac, but he didn't have to. God provided a ram instead. And if you remember that Abraham, on the way up the mountain, told all the people to base the mountain, my, my lad and I, my son and I, are going to worship together, and we will shuv, we'll return to you. Sometimes that just means to come back. But most of the time, and every single time in the prophets, it doesn't mean just a coming back literally. It it means to turn your life back to God spiritually. And that's what he calls them to do. Shuv is a free choice. God could have forced them to come back. But Shuv was their choice. So, Zechariah begins his book coming strong in the very opening by using the word they'd be very familiar with. Shuv. A word their ancestors would have heard from the prophets whom they ignored. Shuv. Some of them may be small, little kids may remember it. And Israel would have known exactly why he used that word. Because shuv is important. It's not a coincidence that the word shuv is intertwined all the way through the New Testament. Come back. So he begins his prophecy, verse 3. It just reads very normal in our, in our Bible. Therefore, uh, the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, shuv and I will shuv to you. I'll come back to you. Now, let's look at that phrase just for a moment at the end of verse 3 where he says, I will return to you. Had God left them? No, they thought he had. They thought he was no longer there. They thought he had left them years ago, but he hadn't. So God is speaking to them what they think, not what actually happened. Sometimes we feel that way. Sometimes life is hard and we think God's left us. Things happen, deaths happen, loss of job, illness. And sometimes we wonder if God's left us. Now, you hear the preacher say he hasn't, but but you feel like he has. 
And that's how they felt. They felt like he was no longer there. Why did they feel that way? Well, the land desolate for 70 years and the rebuilding was hard and times were easier in Babylon and no money or manpower to rebuild everything and crop failures and drought and hostile enemies. It just looked like everything was against them. And God wanted to let them know, even though I haven't left you, you think I have, but if you'll return to me, I'll return to you. And Zechariah was telling the Israelites, God is not that far away. You think he is, but he's not. So the message of hope was there at the very beginning of Zechariah's prophecy. Now let's go on. Next, number three on your outline there, the danger of disobedience, verses four and five. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Don't be like your fathers. The word be there literally means become. Don't become like they were because it's in your genes it's your, it's your ancestors. Don't become like them. They, the, the, they sinned. They ignored the prophet's call to come back. You lost your land the first time because you ignored the prophets. It could happen again, so don't ignore the words. And it says they cried out, return from your evil ways and from your evil practices. So both deeds and words, they had sinned at that. And he says to come back. He says they didn't hear, they didn't pay attention. Interesting, the word hear there or pay attention literally is the word samah. Samah means hear. Samuel, you remember when he was born? El is the name for God. Samael meant God hears. And you remember Hannah was barren, couldn't have a child, prayed for God to give her a child. He gave her a child and she's going to name him God hears. He heard me. Samael. Samuel. And so, Samah, God is paying attention, and, and they did not pay attention to God. God pays attention to us, but they did not pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Now, look at verse 5. Your fathers, where are they? The prophets, do they live forever? What he was saying was, your, your, your ancestors and the former prophets they're both dead. Jeremiah's dead. Isaiah, they're all dead. They can't warn you anymore. Your ancestors, they're dead. They can't lead you anymore. So, I'm your spokesman. I'm the one to listen to. You don't have anybody to warn you. Listen to my words. You're not going to have endless opportunities to repent. So whenever I tell you repent, you've got to listen. So he begins his prophecy by really emphasizing the fact they need to listen to him. Did they? Well, we're going to see at the end of the book, they killed him. They killed him one day. At church, in the temple courts, Jesus talked about it, Matthew 23, 35, talked about how Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, 
you, he talked to the religious leaders, you killed him between the altar and the temple. So, did they listen? We don't know. But we know he said something one day they didn't like. And they executed him. Just like they had killed the prophets before him. So, let's move on to verse 6. But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Now, what he's saying here in verse 6, number 5, you'll see the, the truthfulness of, of God's word. Or, or rather, verse 6, you'll see. The words of the former prophets had come true. The, all the other 8th century prophets that prophesied, the words had come true and said, The words overtook your fathers. The word overtake there is interesting. It's a word meaning to hunt an animal down, catch it, kill it, and it's yours. So it's, it's the picture of hunting down, catching, and overtaking a prey. And he said the words the prophets spoke before, they preached them, and they were like going out after an animal, and they caught you. And they've sent you into exile, and they executed you. So just don't hear God's words and think it's nothing. It's powerful enough to catch you, overtake you, and destroy you. That's what he's saying. But my words and my statutes, which I committed my servants, did they not overtake their fathers? So God's word is true and powerful. You know, I think of our generation when I think of that. We live in a generation and a culture. You, you know that. I've mentioned it. And you, you know it. They take God's words and they don't, they're not really that important to them. God says something and we allow us. I believe different. God says this. Oh, I don't believe that's right. And that's our culture. Be careful. Be careful. God's words are powerful enough to overtake you. Capture you. Yes, be your destruction. So just don't discount God's word. It's powerful. It's truthful. And whenever it's spoken, whenever it's proclaimed, whenever it's preached, prophesied as Zechariah did, don't just ignore it. It's powerful. It's truthful. Next, number five. God deals with us according to our actions. Verse six. Notice the last phrase, so they repented and said, as the Lord has purpose, as the Lord of hosts has purpose to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. So what he's saying here is, your actions are proof of what you believe. Let me say that again because you probably think differently. Your actions are proof of what you believe. He said, oh, no, 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 pastor, I, I believe in the Lord. But if your actions show you're not following the Lord, then you don't believe that. You can say you do, but you don't. What you really believe is how you live. So he's saying here, God deals with you, not according to what you say, but what you do. 
You remember in the Revelation study we just finished last, last, uh, at the end of 22? We got to the end and we talked about the judgment. And you remember it says in Revelation that God judged them out of the books according to their deeds, not according to their profession. You see, sometimes we get all caught up. Oh, have you made a profession? Have you made a profession of faith? Well, you need to do that, but it needs to be a decision that affects the way you live from now on. You don't just walk an aisle, get saved, and live like you want to live the rest of your life. It must be, there must be fruit that comes from that profession. Because what we're going to be judged by is how we've lived. Did you make a profession and fruit follow that? Or did you just walk an aisle, sign a card, everybody clap for you, and you live like the devil the rest of your life? That person's not going to heaven, I'm sorry. Oh, their name is on the church road. Doesn't matter. Because God deals with us according to our actions, the fruit that results. So God will deal with us in that way. God promised to bless his people if they would repent. And if they'd follow him, he promised to bless them. But think about this. It's one thing to ask God to bless you. But it's another thing to live the kind of life he can bless. That's a difference. Sometimes we say, oh, would you bless me, Lord? But you're not living in a way he can bless you. So live your life in a way that he can bless you. So to summarize the first six verses, call to repentance. Zechariah was saying, don't just rebuild the temple. Rebuild your life. You laid the foundations physically, good. You built the altar back, good. You're making a sacrifice so your sins can be forgiven, good. Now, rebuild your heart. Because you've got, some, you've got it in your genes to be very rebellious. You've got it in your genes that whenever somebody preaches, you don't listen. So don't just rebuild the temple. Rebuild your heart and rebuild your life. Boy, he's off to an interesting start, isn't he? Wow. Let's do one more thing. We just have just a few minutes and we'll close. Letter C on your outline, introducing the eight visions of Zechariah. Starting next Wednesday night. We're going to start looking. He has eight visions. Boom, 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 boom. One right after another. He got them all on one night. Remember, 24th of Shabbat, February 15th. And so all eight visions we're going to start looking at. Not all eight next week. We're going to look at number one next week. But what I want you to know about, let's introduce the visions first tonight, and then we'll be ready to start looking at the first one next week. Just mention a few things about all eight visions, and then we'll, then we'll close. As I mentioned, he received all of them at, at one time, all eight. All eight visions involved both prophecies of, a, of an immediate future, but of a distant future. Not just now while you're rebuilding the temple, but one day down the road, hundreds of years from now, they're fulfilled in the Messiah and a person known as Jesus. So they're visions of the now but they're also visions of the future, the coming king. And he said, knowing these eight visions are going to give you a lot of hope. So these eight visions are designed to be very hopeful to the Israelites. They are going to be full of hope for you because your best days are ahead, not behind you. Now, there are certain features that mark each vision. 
Each vision, all eight of them, are there's an introduction to the vision. Like he says, you know, he uh, says here, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse is the first vision. We'll get to that next week. But there's an introduction to the vision, and then there's an explanation of what he saw, all eight visions. And then he makes a request to clarify the vision because they're all odd. You're going to see as we're odd. It's a woman sitting in a basket. It's a flying scroll and all this kind of stuff. And they're odd. And so he's going he's gonna to third, ask God to clarify what it means. And then fourth, God's going to bring clarity. So you see that in every single vision. He explains what happens. He, he, or he says introduction. He explains what he saw. He asks God to clarify it because it's odd. And God brings clarity. And so we're going to see that in all eight of the visions. Now, if you remember, last Wednesday night, we said that all eight of these visions form what's called a chiasm in Hebrew a structure. It's a teaching device. If you've ever heard of a chiastic structure, that's what it means. Here's, here's what it is. It's like where, so there are eight of them. One and eight are like up here. They're very similar. Two and seven are next. They're similar. Three and six, they're next. They're similar. Four and five, they're next. They're similar. So on each ends, it's similar. And I described it last week like you're in an airplane. You're flying at 32,000 feet. And you see the, see the earth looks about that small. And, and you see the big picture. And the, you get lower and you can see the earth. And it's like you see the country of Israel. All of it. And you get a little lower and you see Jerusalem. And you get really low and you see the temple inside of Jerusalem. And then if you pull back up, you see Jerusalem, then you see Israel, then you see the world. And so it's like a plane going down and coming back up. So all eight visions are like that. Vision one and eight talk about the nations, broad view. Visions two and seven talk about Israel. Visions three and six both talk about Jerusalem. And visions four and five talk about the temple. And so you're going to see that like a plane flying down and flying back up. If you keep that in mind, as we go through here, all eight visions will make a lot more sense. Okay, that's tonight. And all eight visions are, by the way, also are meant to be interpreted as one unit. And that unit is saying God has hope for you. He's returning glory to your land and to your people. So that's where we'll pick up next Wednesday night. If you have any questions or comments, Feel free to see me afterwards or email me. I'm always glad to hear from you. Let's pray together and we'll close. God, thank you for your word tonight and for how you teach us your word. And Lord, it is, it is my prayer as the most faithful members of First Baptist Church hear this passage. God, it's my prayer that every one of us will be quick to repent of our sins. Even though we come to church all the time, even though we're some of the most faithful even though maybe we've been saved the longest. God, may we always have a heart quick to hear your word, quick to hear prophecy of your word, and quick to repent. And Lord, if that's needed tonight in our hearts and lives, may we repent of ways that we have failed you, maybe even this day before we go to bed tonight. So God, help us to be a people always quick to repent. Bless us as we continue to Read the, the uh, Zechariah and study it, and may our lives be worthy of ones that you can bless as well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. See you Sunday.